The United States has made remarkable progress in vaccinating a large percentage of the population, with over 35% of people being fully vaccinated and over 46% having received one dose of the vaccine. However, these numbers are stalling and vaccine hesitancy seems to be on the rise. So today we'll talk about what is driving vaccine hesitancy, as well as what is going on with surges of COVID in COVID cases around the world. Uh, the new guidelines uh, for the, by the CDC for fully vaccinated people and other updates to, in the fight against the pandemic. So welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Agustina Bergarcid and I'm a research associate at ARI. And joining me today is Amy Chadalja, expert in infectious disease and scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, so, Amish, I would like to um, start by talking a little bit about uh, vaccine hesitancy. So, like I said, here in the U.S., we started really strong with the vaccine campaign, but now we're kind of seeing a slowdown on the number of people that are getting vaccinated. Um, and I think that given the, the wide availability of the vaccine in most places, you, in some places you don't even need appointments anymore, you can just walk in and get a vaccine. I think that at least part of this slowdown can be attributed to vaccine hesitancy. And uh, a lot of people are concerned about the safety of the vaccines when it comes to immediate and long-term side effects. So what can you tell us about the safety of the vaccines that are currently available to us here in the US? And are we seeing any evidence of the safety of the vaccines in the real world data? So when it comes to these COVID-19 vaccines, they are extremely safe. When you look at all the clinical trial data, they really uh, were, were, was, there was no concerning signal anywhere in that data. And there has been no concerning signal with mRNA vaccines that we've seen for some time. Then you have the real world evidence, which is even more important. Hundreds of millions of doses have went into people all around the world, and we're not seeing any concerning safety signal. You have to remember that there are always going to be side effects anytime you inject something into your body, anytime you take a vaccine. So people do get aches and pains. Uh, they may have fevers and chills, but it's very, very minor and not anything different than what you would expect with many other vaccines. There have not really been anything that's concerning. One, one thing that might come up is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, where there were uh, a, a cluster of very rare side effects, where there was a, a clotting disorder that occurred in a select group of people. But also, the other point to remember when you're assessing safety is you've got to look at the risk of the disease versus the risk of any kind of side effect. And when you look at the risk-benefit ratio for any of these vaccines, they all favor the vaccines, especially in high-risk groups where they're at high risk for, for complications from COVID-19. So in my mind, these are very safe and efficacious vaccines, even in the clinical trial data on younger children from the ages of 12 to 15, which now has an emergency use approval for the Pfizer version of the vaccine. The, the vaccine appears extremely safe there. So I, I think that in any kind of objective look at the safety of these vaccines, the vaccines come out high, high above any kind of uh, concerning any concerning level of side effects. They really are are something that I think is are, are something that are, that are safe in almost in every age group, every high risk, every you know traditional high risk group. For example, pregnant women, the vaccines all show high levels of safety. So I do think this is a, a vaccine that is extremely safe, and and I think what we'll find over time is some of these vaccines are some of the best that humans have ever developed. And I've I've have personally heard a lot of people say that they were dissuaded from getting any COVID vaccine when the FDA paused the administration of the Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. 
Uh, and these people claim that it was kind of like, some of the people claim that it was kind of like evidence that the vaccines were not fully studied and tested before being released to the public. So what do you think about that move by the FDA of pausing the administration of the vaccine? And was there really a major safety concern about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that justify that pause? So I was labeled the chief critic of the FDA policy by Forbes magazine because I was so against what the FDA did because I knew once they paused the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it was going to be very hard to unpause it. And when it did get unpaused, and they knew it invariably would be unpaused, people were going to think of it as a second-class vaccine or one to stay away from. And indeed, if you look at the Johnson & Johnson share of vaccinations post-pause, it's very, very low. So what happened there? there? There was a cluster of people, about seven or eight cases of a very rare uh, disorder, very similar to something that happens when you give a, a person a drug called heparin, where they form antibodies against parts of, of platelets, which are part of your blood clotting, and then they paradoxically clot. It, and it's something that was seen at least signals of with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And what I think would have been a better way so the, the other point is, is that our, 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 when people talk about safety, our vaccine safety surveillance systems in the United States are so robust that they picked up something that was occurring in one in a million shots. So that already shows you how sensitive the safety concerns are to people that are monitoring this. But what I think should have happened at that point, because we're in the midst of a pandemic, because people, there are hundreds of people are still dying every day from COVID-19 in the United States, I think we should have alerted clinicians, we should have alerted public health agencies and the public and said, this is, this rare, this is a rare side effect that happened in about one in a million shots. It seems to occur in women uh, between these certain ages of childbearing age, but this is something that you can make a decision about. Now we know what this, we know what this disorder is, we know how to treat it, we know how to diagnose it. And, and then I think you could have done all of that without having to pause it. But I think what they, they aired on the side of caution and paused it in order to give the impression or give the, the feeling to the American public that they're taking vaccine safety. But I was very worried, and I think it's borne out, that it was going to be very hard to, uh, to restart the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. A very similar thing happened with AstraZeneca in Europe and, and with AstraZeneca right now in Canada, where they are unable to really resume vaccinations because of these rare side effects. And I think it has to do with the fact that people don't, do a very good job of risk benefit calculation. They see, they hear about these side effects, they remember the headlines, but they don't remember that COVID-19 itself causes blood clots or COVID-19 is a deadly disease. And that this vaccine, when you do that kind of math, the risk benefit ratio favors it in almost all situations. So I think this could have been handled much better. I think the FDA was er erring on the side of caution because that's where the, you know they're incentivized to err on that side. And I think we, we're all the worse off for it because the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a critical vaccine because it's a single dose vaccine and it doesn't require cold storage. So when you talk about rural populations where people don't have access to a vaccine center, where you want to vaccinate people door to door or go to their houses, that's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So I think we really took one of our most important tools off the table and basically handicapped it for no fault of its own because of the, this, this airing on the side of caution and really going about this in the, in the wrong way when the same goals of alerting people to this rare side effect could have been accomplished without pausing the vaccine for 10 days. Yes, that makes sense. And uh, when, when you were, you mentioned earlier when talking generally about the, the, the safety of, of the vaccines in general, not just Johnson & Johnson's, uh, you mentioned that the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine for kids starting at age 12. Um, so how much of a dent do you think that pediatric vaccinations can put on the spread of the virus? Because uh, from the beginning of the pandemic, we've been kind of hearing uh, that the, 
the children in general are low risk for severe infection and that, that there may be less infection, infectious than, than adults. So how much do you think this is going to impact the, the spread of the virus? It will have some impact, but not as much of an impact as increasing vaccination in adult populations. Because as you said, children are, are tend to be spared from severe consequences and they don't magnify COVID-19. So when you look at influenza, for example, children magnify influenza in the community. They don't seem to magnify it so much in, in, with COVID-19. Maybe older children, high school, 16, 17 year olds definitely do, but they were accessible to, the, they had access to the vaccine. 17% of the US population is between the ages of 12 and 15. So it will get us closer to a level of population immunity where the virus finds it harder to spread. Any vaccine going into people is going to make it harder for the virus to spread. So, so I think in general, it's the more people that are vaccinated, even if they're lower risk is gonna be better in terms of um, spread of the virus. There is some controversy though, because children aren't the ones who get severe consequences. And we do have this outbreak raging out of control in other parts of the world. So thinking about it strategically, what, if you're trying to look at the, the pandemic globally, would pediatric vaccines, that the vaccines going to 12 to 15 year olds, would, would it be better to allocate them to high risk individuals who have not been vaccinated? Probably yes. But I think one of the other things to think about is in the United States, children have suffered horribly during this pandemic, not because of the virus itself, but because of the actions that have been taken on their behalf, such as uh, stopping in-person schooling, not being able to partake in activities. And there are and, and I advise parents, you know, you can do this even without them being vaccinated. Just be cautious about the risks and think about, think about making good risk calculations when you're doing that. But unfortunately, many parents and many teachers unions have made it a huge obstacle to do that. So I, I say, you know, if, if this gets children back to being children, I think this is a good thing to do. And hopefully, we, you know, lots of children got vaccinated in the first week. So this is something I think we all want to, to we all want the children to be able to flourish again. So in that sense, I think, that, that the vaccine is necessary for that reasons. But it will, but I do think once we get to around 40% of the US population fully vaccinated, and we're around 37%, if you look at the Israeli data, when they got to 40%, they had a precipitous decline in cases. And, and we're starting on that descent. And I think we'll continue. And, and maybe some of these children, especially the older ones, the 13, 14, 15 year olds who are playing sports and doing things, they may be, um, they may help get us to get our cases down. So speaking of, of that topic, um, we've been hearing for a long time now about the, the, important, the importance of, of reaching herd immunity. Um, and I read uh, a couple articles, I think one of them was in the New York Times that now some experts think that we won't reach herd immunity here in the US. So can you explain a little bit of what this concept of herd immunity is and, and how it's achieved and why some people think that we may not reach it when it comes to COVID-19. So herd immunity is the level of protection in the population to an infectious disease that you have either through natural infection or through vaccination. And, and there's a threshold that you cross where a virus or a bacteria or whatever it might be, finds it very hard to find new people to infect. And it's a, a direct, it's, indirectly related to how contagious a virus is. So the more contagious, or it's actually directly related to how contagious it is. So the more contagious a virus is, the more your population has to be protected. So for measles, which is the most contagious disease known to humans, you have to be 90, 95% of the population protected to keep measles at bay. So when it comes to COVID-19, it's probably around 70% based on its contagiousness, which is very high. Right now, um, it, it's, it looks like the US won't hit herd immunity because of vaccine hesitancy, because uh, children that are under the age of 12 years are not eligible for the vaccine. But I was never somebody, somebody that thought that herd immunity was the be all and end all. I think herd immunity is something important to strive for. 
But what the vaccines were designed to do, what we've been trying through this whole public health emergency to do was stop three things, stop serious disease, hospitalization, and deaths from COVID-19. The vaccines do a great job at that. So if you can get your high-risk population vaccinated, you will basically decouple cases from hospitalizations and deaths. And I think we've already successfully done that in the United States. Being in a hospital now in May of 2021 is so different than what it was just in January of 2021. And that's because our high-risk populations got the vaccine first. So I think in my mind, most of this public health emergency in the United States is done even before you hit that herd immunity threshold. And like I said earlier, when Israel got to 40% of their population vaccinated, the pandemic basically ended there. And right now, over the last 14 days, cases are down a third in the United States. We're seeing this we're seeing dwindling numbers of people getting infected. And that's because we've got 37% of the population fully vaccinated. And then you've got a significant, maybe 25%, 30% more that have natural immunity from, from infection. So the virus is definitely finding it harder to move around here. And it can't get to vulnerable populations, so it can never threaten hospitals. So to me, that's always been what we were aiming for with the public health response. And to me, that I think that that's been largely accomplished even before we got to herd immunity. And it's important to remember that this virus isn't going to be eliminated. It's not going to be eradicated. It's not gonna go back into bats. This is stuck with us. There are four other coronaviruses that cause 25% of our common colds. This is going to be the fifth seasonal coronavirus. And we're still gonna have cases three years from now. There's still gonna be people that get hospitalized, but never at the pace that we saw during the pandemic because of the vaccine. Good. That's um, that's fantastic news to hear that the, the public health emergency is basically over here. Um, and I think echoing what you said that we've been, you know, several states have been lifting uh, lockdowns and mask mandates and still cases are plummeting and deaths are plummeting and there are no longer, the hospitals are no longer overwhelmed at all from what I have read. So that is, that is really good news. Um, so one of the biggest pieces of, of news in the last few weeks has been uh, this, the new CDC guidelines that came out last Thursday. So the, what the CDC guidelines, as you know, uh, basically says is that fully vaccinated people do not need to wear a mask outdoors or indoors, uh, with a few exceptions, for example, in uh, hospital settings and public transportation, planes, etc. And the CDC director said that fully vaccinated people can go back to doing basically everything they did before the pandemic started. Um, what prompted the, the CDC to issue this, uh, this guideline now? And why did, why did it take so long to issue this guideline that effectively stated that getting the vaccine means getting your life back and your freedom back? And, Connected to that, yeah, sorry, uh, do you think that right. the restrictive guidelines of the past contributed to, to vaccine hesitancy? I definitely think the restrictive guidelines contributed to vaccine hesitancy, because if it wasn't going to be something that improved your personal life, if it didn't allow you to pursue the values you wanted, why get it? And I think that was a... a, a a lot of underselling of the vaccine that went on. And I was one of the big critics of that all over the place saying that this isn't, this isn't right. Why would people get vaccinated if it doesn't change their life? And I had been from someone from the very beginning saying, when you're fully vaccinated, go back to your pre-pandemic life. And I knew the public health guidance was going to lag and the CDC was going to be cautious. And what they were doing were taking very cautious baby steps. They were all baby steps in the right direction, but they were very cautious. And it might be because the CDC was so burned during the Trump administration where they were, where their guidance was doubted, where, where there was so much politics injected into what was going on, everything they said was being vetted through the White House that they kind of overcorrected. 
and and they got they, they didn't want to be in that same position that they were in the Trump administration. So it's it's now I think you know the, the new guidance is the CDC getting its legs back. It's a CDC that I that I, I love that the CDC that's proactive that tells people you know the value of the vaccines and it really shows confidence in these vaccines that yes if you're fully vaccinated you are no longer a threat to others and this virus is really not a threat to you anymore. So go back to your life and I think that should move the needle on vaccines. But also it's reflective of the science and the science was emerging over the last several months. And I think, yes, this was long in coming. And I, I was somebody that wasn't surprised. I was waiting for it and waiting for it, hoping that they would, they would issue it uh, earlier than they did. And, but I'm, I, I'm glad that they did issue it because it really shows you what these vaccines can do and what great pieces of technology they are. And we had data, we had data from clinical trials as well as data from, from Israel where they vaccinated so much of their population to show what the power of these vaccines were. So the CDC is taking a lot of criticism for this guidance, but this guidance is 100%. And I think governors, such as the governor in uh, the governor in California, really need to embrace the science and embrace the CDC guidance and align themselves. But I live in a blue state in Pennsylvania. Our governor has done that. I think uh, Gavin Newsom needs to do that as well. And I think other countries also should do that. So, for example, just north of us in Canada, I think that, that whole way that they're handling it there, where you cannot do anything, where, where it's as if the pandemic has because they haven't been able to vaccinate, they've really not allowed anybody to get second doses of vaccines and then not allowed fully vaccinated people to do anything. So I think we really need to show people that the vaccines are the path to normalcy. Yes, and uh, speaking of California, I do hope that uh, our governor, I live in California, I hope our governor really, he claims to follow the science, so I hope he, he, he does. He's waiting until June 15th now to drop the mask mandate and open up the state, as, as they say. Um, and then one, one issue that we've also been seeing a lot of is the issue of breakthrough infections. And one case that um, made some headlines was the case of the Seychelles Island, where uh, there's a renewed surge of COVID cases, even though they have over 60% of the population vaccinated. Um, and from some reports say that it's not just mild infections, it's, you know, the hospitals are already, are already overwhelmed, uh, according to, to, to some journalists. And they vaccinated primarily with the Sinopharm, uh, the Chinese Sinopharm vaccine, I hope that's the right pronunciation, and to a lesser, lesser extent with the AstraZeneca vaccine. What do you think explains this surge in cases? Is it because of these vaccines in particular or what else could, could we explain in this? To me, I think it has to be the vaccines, not the AstraZeneca vaccine, because the UK controlled their pandemic with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so, so what I think is happening here is not all the vaccines are equal. The, the Sinopharm vaccine, even though it has a WHO emergency mark on it, that the WHO recognizes it as a valid vaccine, does not seem to be as good as the Pfizer, the Moderna, the Johnson & Johnson, or the AstraZeneca vaccines, or even Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine. Uh, this seems to be an inferior vaccine. And the, the, the head of the Chinese CDC actually said that their vaccines were inferior. So if you look at the Seychelles, the majority of people that were vaccinated there got the, got the Sinopharm vaccine. And I, I haven't seen strong data to, to look at the breakdown of where these breakthrough infections were occurring and where the severe ones were, go, were occurring. But my hypothesis is that they were likely in people that were vaccinated with the Sinopharm vaccine. And, and it's an older technology vaccine. And one of the things is, you know, China has gotten the WHO um, emergency approval for this. However, they've never published their phase three trial data in any randomized control. They have not shown that data in a, in a medical journal. Even the Russians have done this. So the Chinese need to actually show us their data, I think, if, they're, if they want us to think this is a valid vaccine. Because if the world wants to get back on track 
and people are looking for proof of vaccination, how are we going to evaluate the the Sinopharm vaccine versus somebody who was vaccinated with Johnson and Johnson or or AstraZeneca or or Moderna or Pfizer? I don't think they're equivalent, and I think that it, the Chinese government need to publish that data so that we can actually look at it, because the Seychelles Islands really that that's something that they need to explain why the majority of people there were vaccinated with this vaccine and they had breakthrough infections. I think that, that there's, a, there's a problem, there may be a problem with that vaccine. That's my, my, my first hypothesis. Well, likely we, it doesn't seem to be a, an issue here with the, with the vaccines that we have available here in the US. However, we have seen some reports of breakthrough infections uh, here in the, in the US. And the one that, that uh, one case that has been uh, fairly publicized is uh, the case of the nine players from the New York Yankees that tested positive for COVID, even though they were vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So uh, how, what explains these cases generally? We know that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is an, is an effective vaccine and it's safe, but what does it say about the vaccine that nine people in the same group uh, got infected? And could this be the case with other vaccines like uh, Pfizer or Moderna as well? So there's a couple of things to, to talk about the New York Yankees. So first of all, you know, breakthrough infections occur with all of the vaccines. Very, very rare though. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a decimal point and four zeros and then a number. That's the percentage that have a breakthrough infection. Most breakthrough infections are not clinically relevant. They're, they don't have any symptoms. They're not associated with a high enough viral load to be transmissible. And it's very rare that you see reinfections in the, or, sorry, breakthrough infections in the United States land someone in the hospital. The CDC doesn't recommend that you test somebody that's fully vaccinated unless they have symptoms. So that's another thing, because we don't want to pick up asymptomatic infections that don't really mean anything anymore, that are clinically meaning, meaningless. One of the things about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, so if you're, it's a single-dose vaccine, you wait two weeks, you're considered fully vaccinated. If you look at the trial data for Johnson & Johnson, they continue to have improved immunity up to four weeks. So there are some people in my field who are quite reasonably saying, if you get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, let's say four weeks to be fully vaccinated. So it, it may be a, an idiosyncrasy there. I would also, we, have a, we need a lot more data there because I it, they're all New York Yankees. They all got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Did somehow that batch get, was it a bad batch? Did the batch, something happened to it? It was le left out too long? Did it, that, that's all really important to know as well. And also, how were they tested? Was the Because te you, you, you want to make sure in this situation that the test was okay, that it's very statistically odd to have eight players on the same team all have breakthrough infections when they're so rare. So there, there clearly something, something was going on there. But remember, breakthrough infections in, in, in the New York Yankees, only one of them had symptoms, which goes, and there were mild symptoms. So I don't think that breakthrough infections anymore mean, mean much unless they're severe enough to land you in the hospital. And that's why the CDC has stopped tracking breakthroughs unless they land you in the hospital because they're not so important and we should not be tested. So most of those New York Yankees should not have even been tested if they were fully vaccinated because all you're going to pick up is these asymptomatic infections. And asymptomatic infections mean a whole different thing now because cases are now decoupled from severe disease and death because our high-risk population is, is um, vaccinated. And the fully vaccinated breakthroughs that we see, the viral load is so low that they don't pose a risk to others. So I think we've got to start changing our testing strategy because now we've kind of removed the bad, the, the, the bad consequences for the most part of COVID-19. And now it's more like other respiratory viruses in the United States. So I think we, we, we have to adjust our testing policy. And I wrote a, I wrote a paper, uh, uh, an op-ed in The Hill this week talking about that. And, uh, 
that's that, that's really about shifting the way we think about this now that we've sort of tamed the virus or defanged it or removed its ability to cause serious disease at the level it could in the past. Good. We'll make sure to to link your op-ed uh, in the show notes. And it's also important to know because uh, I've seen a lot of concern about this that if you happen to be one of the people that get infected or asymptomatic, that the viral load is going to be so low that you are you, you do not really pose a risk to anyone else if you're fully vaccinated. Right. Um, so now I would like to um, shift gears a little bit and talk about what we're seeing of COVID and the pandemic around the world. So we're seeing the case of India in the news now. Uh, can you say a word about what is going on there and what explains the surge of cases now over a year after the pandemic started and what are the potential effects that this outbreak in India can have in the rest of the world? So India is an interesting story because many people thought it was spared because they didn't get hit hard in the first wave. So what did they do? When they got cases there, they locked down. But India is a place where there is extreme poverty and people can't afford to lock down because if they don't work, they don't eat. So people in those urban areas migrated with the virus all over the country, it was said to be the biggest migration, one of the biggest migrations ever in India, away from the urban centers to the countryside. And then they thought, okay, we, we, we beat this. India, it's conquered. That's what their prime minister said. And they started to then have events again, major holy Hindu events where there's a million people in the, in the Ganges, not social distancing. Prime Minister Modi was having major political rallies where people were packed together. And, not, and at the same time, so India is not a country that's inexperienced with pharmaceuticals. They're considered the pharmacy of the world. India actually was licensed and is licensed to make the AstraZeneca vaccine. They also have their own vaccine, which is, seems to be effective. But what happened was there was complacency. Only about 1% of their population got fully vaccinated because many of them didn't see a need for it because they thought that they had somehow dodged this bullet, that they weren't going to get it. But what happened was this virus was continually spreading. It uh, evolved into a more contagious variant, and it exploded uh, in, the, in the population, and they were not vaccinated enough. And most of their vaccines were slated to for the developing world because they're part of all of these major programs to get vaccines to, to resource poor countries. So all their vaccine was being exported. People didn't want the vaccine there. And then they have this very fragile health system, which can't deal with a, a sustained surge like that. And that's exactly what, what happened. So I mean, I think the lesson here is that they got complacent. They thought it was gone. They thought somehow they were going to dodge this. And they did not aggressively vaccinate their population when they had the chance to. And now it's going to take some time to calm this down. And I think India is important because it's a net vaccine exporter. So this is a major ripple effect. Many of the world's programs to vaccinate the developing world in Africa, as well as in other parts of Asia, was premised on India's export of the AstraZeneca vaccine and their own vaccine. And now all of those are being diverted to domestic use, I, I think reasonably so, but it, it's, it's going to have a ripple effect on the world because India is going to have an outsized influence because of its use, because of the fact that many of the world's uh, developing countries were, were depending upon its vaccine pipeline. So this is going to be something that is, that, that's really going to put the whole world control of the pandemic back for, for some time. I think in general for highly vaccinated countries like the U.S., it's not going to pose as much of a threat because we've 
the variant the variant there, the Indian variant, does seem to be taken care of by our vaccine. So the variant, the best insurance against variants causing problems are to have a highly vaccinated population. But this is a, this is a major global setback, and I think it probably needs to be when you're looking at how to control this pandemic globally. It has to be the highest priority to to, to stop it there. And you're already seeing concern because it is spilling into countries like Nepal and Pakistan and Bangladesh, uh, so so in, in Indonesia and places like that where there had been travel. So I think it's it's going to you know, put the world on even more stark different timelines for control of the virus, where you have the US, the UK, Israel, a few other countries where the virus is, the pandemic is basically over, but outside of that kind of zone of, of vaccination, you're going to have the, the, vi the, the virus raging out of control well into 2022. Yes, and, and obviously the global pandemic will, won't be over until every country tames this virus, because eventually, it's variants are going to make their way everywhere in the world, as we've seen, because it's, it's a highly contagious virus. But um, for, for countries that do not have these vaccines available, like you just mentioned what happened with, with India, what, what do you think are some solutions to this problem? The Biden administration uh, vowed to uh, donate millions of vaccines to countries that are really struggling with the, with the pandemic right now. Do you think this is a, it's a good policy to have? Is it going to be enough? It's not going to be enough, but I think it's it's going that that we expect during these types of global health emergencies, you often have countries donate vaccines, and I think there's multiple mechanisms for that. So that's likely going to happen. For example, in the United States, we're sitting on a major stockpile of AstraZeneca vaccine. It's not going to be used here in the United States. I think it's pretty clear now. They've already donated some to Canada and Mexico, and now Canada has paused the use of AstraZeneca. So it's going actually in Canada. They're actually letting doses expire because they don't want to use it. Um, so I think that. I, I think you're going to see more donations. I think it's going to help. Um, places like India, the vaccine is going to take some time to actually have an impact because right now they have a crisis with hospitals and they don't have the ability to even concentrate oxygen in some of those hospitals. And they're running out of staff, they're running out of beds. So this is kind of a, a, more of a humanitarian disaster, what's going on in India. So vaccines are part of the solution, but there's some basic things that need to be done. In some of those countries, it's very hard to come up with a, a good public health plan because there's so many cases that test, trace, isolate gets overwhelmed. And I think, you know, the only time I think that, you know, forced social distancing and, and lockdowns might be justified is when your hospitals are in crisis until you can figure things out. That's, that's all you can do, but you can't do that in a place where people don't have, that's a luxury to be able to do that because people need savings, people need to eat, people need to work, that, that you can't put productivity on hold forever in certain places and not have really dire consequences. We had consequences even in the United States when you did that. So I don't really know what the best solution is because they let, you know, it's again another failure of government what happened there in India because there was complacency uh, from the highest level from the prime minister on down that I think they're, they're going to pay for. So the, the solution is really just to go back to basics and, and try and, and get control of this by as much as you can do voluntarily to tell people to social distance, get as much vaccine into people and make sure that the hospitals are supported so they don't collapse. Uh, it, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, it's a very difficult situation when you let, let something spiral out of control in a country that doesn't have the ability to social distance. Yes, and uh, I think a, a lot of governments around the world, unfortunately, are really dropping the ball when it comes to, to, to their vaccine, vaccination campaigns. However, many individuals have found like a way around it. For example, many people from Latin America and really all over the world are coming to the U.S. to get vaccinated. Uh, it's even a, a whole sub-industry within the travel industry now. They have promotions where they, have, they say, 
come to Miami to get vaccinated. Here's a tourism package for you to, to be able to do that. And states like Florida are actively encouraging and welcoming international tourists to get vaccinated there. So what do you think about this uh, vaccine tourism about, uh, how do you, how, what do you think about it as a matter of policy? And do you think it will hinder or, or help the fight against the pandemic? Every vaccine that goes into someone's arm helps the fight against the pandemic. So if that arm happens to be someone from Latin America or that arm happens to be someone from Pennsylvania, it doesn't matter to me as long as the vaccines are going into people's arms and not sitting on shelves. In the United States, we're now wasting vaccines. It's in polling, it shows only 11% of adults that haven't been vaccinated plan to be vaccinated. So I would rather have that vaccine go into someone's arm anywhere uh, than to go into a trash can. And that's what's happening as we hit this kind of wall of vaccine hesitancy and it's becoming harder and harder to vaccinate into individuals. So I don't have any problem with people coming to the United States to get vaccinated. I actually have recommended people to do that if that's if that's the only way that they can get vaccinated. So I think that this is a good thing. <clears throat> the more people that, that, that are vaccinated, the better the world is going, going to be. And I think, you know, also there, there are still export restrictions in place in the United States. I think we have to lift those export restrictions so that vaccines can be exported so that whatever vaccines are made in the United States, if they're, they can be sold outside of the country. And when they, when, when both Trump and Biden invoked the Defense Production Act, they basically prohibited exports of vaccines and vaccine ingredients, which also created a trickle effect problem in many other countries who don't have access to vaccines. It's not necessarily about the intellectual property. It's why do we have export restrictions? That's, that's a bigger issue to me. I see. And um, a lot of, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, mixing vaccines now, because I think that is related to what we've been talking about here. Because, for example, like a lot of people from, from these countries that have really bad vaccination campaigns have received one dose of, the, of, of a vaccine, whether AstraZeneca or Sputnik V or the, the Sinopharm vaccine, but the governments are telling them, look, I don't know when you're going to get your second dose because we do not have, we do not have enough vaccines. Um, and they, they have no guarantee that they will receive the vaccine even this year. So these people are starting to come here to the U.S. Uh, to get um, to restart their vaccination, either with Pfizer or Moderna, even though they already have uh, another a first dose of another vaccine. And I've heard, I've read about about it being studied that the benefit there could be potential benefits from mixing and matching different types of vaccines. So what do we know about this this issue of mixing vaccines, and is it risky and and Another question would be if both doses of a vaccine that you get would have to use the same technology. For example, uh, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca use a similar technology, whereas uh, uh, Pfizer and Moderna use the uh, mRNA technology, which, which is different. So there are studies going on, these mix and match studies, and there is a reason to believe if you use vaccines with two different technologies, like AstraZeneca followed by Moderna or, or Pfizer followed by Johnson & Johnson, that you might get actually increased immunity because the vaccines work a little bit differently. So there are active studies going on. I don't think there's a problem with mixing and matching. And indeed, if someone has a severe allergic reaction to the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, we give them the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as their next vaccine. So we, we do mix and match in those situations. And there are people who got Moderna and then Pfizer because there was a shortage or a pharmacy issue that's happened. That doesn't really matter. But I think that, I think that mixing and matching, we want more data to be able to, to say that it, that it is something that's beneficial or more beneficial or at least equivalent. 
that data is coming. I think in general, if, you, if you're in a situation where you come from another country and you've gotten one dose of something, I think it's fine to, to go and get the, the full doses of the Pfizer or the Moderna or the Johnson & Johnson here in the United States if you can't finish your dose. There is a lot of talk about delaying first doses not being bad because there, there's, so for example, the longer you, there's some data that when you delay the second dose and you wait, you give it not at, at three weeks, but you give it like at 12 weeks or something like that, you might get an increased boost. So there is an academic debate going on. What, what's the optimal, the duration? We have the most data for three weeks between the Pfizer, four weeks between the Moderna, but there's more emerging data that says delaying the first dose, uh, delaying the second dose, not only it gives you a bigger boost when you get the second dose. So, so there are some people thinking that might happen. And there are countries like Canada where they've done that, and it seems to be working. So I think we have to reserve judgment. Right now, the U.S., though, doesn't count you fully vaccinated until you finish the whole series. So even if it might be better to wait longer for the Pfizer vaccine, I think many people are just going to stick to the three weeks in order to get the kind of the blessing that they're fully vaccinated. But I, I, don't, I, I actually early on advocated prioritizing first doses when we were having that sluggish rollout, because I thought just getting as much vaccine into the people as possible, and then getting second doses at some time, catching up makes sense. But I don't think right now in the United States, we need to do that because we've got an overabundance of vaccine. So, but I also have no problem. I think that if people need to finish there, I think it's okay to do this. I think I'd want more data to say that it's better. I think it's at least not harmful uh, to do so at this point. And it's something that we want people to get to complete their vaccination series if they have, even if they have to do it in an extraordinary circumstance with another vaccine, I think it's okay. And I've read some information and some contradictory opinions about booster shots. Some uh, scientists say that we might need a booster shots that they, to make it kind of like an annual, that these COVID vaccines make them like an annual thing, like the flu shot is. And recently I read some other literature saying that that might not even be the case. Uh, why would they be necessary, the booster shots? And do, which position do you do you think is right, and and what would be the timeline if these uh, booster shots are booster shots are really necessary? So it's too early to tell to answer any of those questions, even though the Pfizer CEO said that. But he's speaking, you know, he's obviously the pharmaceutical companies would like to have boosters because it creates a constant revenue stream. So it's something that they're hoping that will be necessary. But what 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 is the threshold for a booster? Um, the threshold for a booster would be people that get full that are fully vaccinated they get a breakthrough infection and that breakthrough infection is severe enough that it's contagious to others or lands them in the hospital. We're not there yet. So I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to need booster shots or even updated types of vaccines for the, the variants because the variants are still unable to cause serious disease in fully vaccinated individuals. So what we have to do is study people who've been vaccinated, follow them over time, six months, 12 months and see, are they getting breakthrough infections? Are those breakthrough infections severe? that's the trigger for a booster. And that might be one year, it might be two years, it might be five years. So I don't think we have that data yet. And, and I think I, I would reserve judgment. I think it's important to study boosters. I think it's important that the FDA did what they did, which made an expedited path. If you need to have a booster, that they don't have to go through all of those same steps, that it can be approved very, very quickly, if that's the case. But I don't think we're at the, at the level of, of needing a booster shot yet, or being able to say that that's for sure going to be something in the future. I see. And uh, I don't know if this would be the case for necessarily booster shots if, shots if we happen to need them, but I've read some information about the next, the new generation of uh, COVID vaccines as pills or, or sprays. Um, can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about how 
they work and how are they different from injections in, in the effects that they may have and in the possible timeline in which we may see this? So there are a whole bunch of second and third generation vaccines that don't make the headlines because they're kind of in the back of the pack. And I do think that there's, so when you're talking about an injection, you, everybody that's gotten a COVID vaccine knows it's a process. You've got to show up somewhere. You've got to sit there. They've got to, you have to have some trained professional give it to you. You've got to, they have to wipe your, your, your arm down. They have to inject you. Then they have to have you sit for 15 minutes to make sure you don't have a side effect. And then you've got to repeat the whole process again with the Pfizer and Moderna. So there's a lot of issues there, including, you know, do you have the right syringe to draw up in the vial so you can get all the doses out, which was a problem early on. So having a vaccine that's easier to administer than an injection, or one that could even be self-administered, makes it so much easier to run a vaccination program. So there are efforts underway to make vaccines that, and, and then, uh, one last point is that there are people with needle phobia, that they, don't, they won't get a vaccine because it involves a needle. So that's a, it, it sounds silly, but there's a lot of people that will not do that just because of that. So if you had an oral pill vaccine, you just take pills. So we do have vaccines like that. The typhoid vaccine, for example, is an oral vaccine. Um, that you can just take, you just take these capsules. That that makes it very easy. You don't need to have a trained professional there. You can prescribe it to someone. They go pick it up at a drugstore. They go home and they take their vaccine. That's so much easier than having to schedule an appointment and go there and and sit there and have a trained professional give you the vaccine. So that, that's one advantage of an oral vaccine. The same is true of a nasal spray vaccine. And one of the other advantages of a nasal spray vaccine is that's usually how you get infected with COVID-19. And there's different parts of your immune system that get stimulated based on where you're infected. So getting, getting a vaccine through your nose would more mimic natural infection than getting an injection. And we do have a precedent with a nasal vaccine. Uh, there is one for influenza called Flumis. So they're trying to take that, adapt that type of technology to a nasal, uh, a nasal administered vaccine. And that's also something that could be self-administered or easily administered because uh, with, a, with the syringe, someone, you don't have to break anybody's skin. It's, it's, it's non-invasive. So there's a lot of efforts to try to make better vaccines. And I think it's too early to say what the future will hold, but I think the second and third generation COVID vaccines might be a lot better than what we have now in terms of side effects, in terms of not requiring super cold storage and not requiring two doses. That's, that's very interesting. And I hope we can see that in the near future. Um, and speaking of kind of like the next generation of vaccines, um, I read some information about the, the what's called the pan-coronavirus vaccine, which in my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, it would be a vaccine that would um, target all types of coronavirus and would be really useful to preventing future pandemics that might happen. What can you tell us about that vaccine? So it's important to remember that SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19, is not the first coronavirus to infect humans. It's the seventh uh, coronavirus. And, and that amongst the coronaviruses that have infected humans, there have been two other very significant ones, SARS and MERS, which are, are very deadly, much more deadly than, than COVID-19 on a pound-for-pound -pound basis. However, um, th that's, those are just the ones that have infected humans. We know in bats, there are many other coronaviruses that likely have the capacity to infect humans that have the capacity to cause an infectious disease emergency. So there are efforts underway to see, can you make a, a va vaccine that not only targets COVID-19, but just knocks out all of the other coronaviruses, something that basically takes all coronavirus threats off the table. And I think that would be a huge benefit because I think of the viral, there's only certain viral families that have the ability to cause a pandemic or an epidemic in, on this type of level. And coronaviruses are that. So that's what this effort is about, trying to find a universal vaccine so that we never have to worry about a coronavirus infectious disease emergency in the future. Good, that's, that's, that would be really good news uh, if that happens. Okay, we're gonna turn now to some questions from the audience. Um, 
A reminder, if you're watching on Zoom, you can ask a question in the Q&A module, or you can leave your question as a super chat question in uh, YouTube if you're watching there. So we have this question from YouTube. Um, it says, they have been working on the mRNA vaccines for at least 10 years. Why hadn't they made it to market before now? Does the emergency authorization by the FDA mean they are less safe than traditional vaccines? No, absolutely not. So mRNA vaccines have been worked on for about 10 years or so. And Moderna is the company that was really pioneering their use. Their, their stock ticker symbol is mRNA. But they were mostly working, working on mRNA vaccines for cancer, uh, trying to make cancer vaccines, a tumor vaccine using mRNA. So sequence someone's tumor and then give them a vaccine as a therapy. Uh, and, and that's what they were doing. And a lot of us in the field had said mRNA vaccines have great potentials for infectious disease as well. It's just that what you know, the seasonal markets. So first of all, not every, not every, so when you look at infectious disease as a pharmaceutical, in the pharmaceutical industry, it's not very lucrative. Many companies don't want to even be involved in infectious disease. Indeed, we've seen many people exit the antibiotics market, exit the vaccine market. So when mRNA vaccine technology was developed, most people were looking at it for other uses, but they also saw that there wasn't a way to do this for infectious disease. But most of the seasonal things already had vaccines that were pretty effective, so there wasn't really a big push. And some, of the, some targets are just not amenable to an mRNA vaccine right away. And what, they were, what, what happened was the people that were interested in mRNA vaccines got very interested in emerging infectious diseases. Some of these were small companies like Moderna or BioNTech or, or others that, that were trying to show that their technology could work in emerging infectious diseases. And there were certain organizations including my own, that were pushing mRNA vaccines as a way to attack this emerging infectious disease problem. Because when you got emerging infectious diseases, no company wants to get involved because, first of all, you don't know if this, this disease is going to happen. You don't know if it does happen, how long it's going to last. You don't know who's going to pay for this in the end. So mo many of those companies don't even want to engage in emerging infectious diseases. But when you have a platform like an mRNA vaccine, you can use it for, can you can, your, your main interest is cancer vaccines, but on the side, you can use that same technology. For, for emerging infectious diseases. So, and because it's such a fast, rapid technology, it made a lot of sense to think about this for emerging infectious disease. But there really wasn't much interest in it until oh, maybe the last five or six years, it really accelerated where, where organizations were funding these companies to develop vaccines against things like Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and other coronavirus. And that's really where this started is that they were looking at them as, as solutions for emerging infectious diseases. And that work that was being done with MERS was directly responsible for the rapidity of, of the, the vaccine for COVID-19 because they understood the spike protein is important. This is how you do this. And they were able to go so fast in hours for BioNTech and days for Moderna. So I think that it just wasn't something that had a lot of interest, even though all of us in the field were clamoring about it. If you, if you Google my name and the word vaccine platforms, you'll see a report that I wrote pre-pandemic really pushing forward mRNA vaccine platforms. And just two years, in 2019, I, I moderated a panel on it at the bio conference. Bio is the major uh, trade organization for, for, for biotech industries about mRNA vaccines. And I had invited Moderna to many of my meetings that I was having. So I, I think a lot of us recognized it and it just took the right opportunity for it to happen. And the fact that it's approved by emergency use authorization doesn't say anything about its safety. What the emergency use authorization is, is a pathway, a legal pathway that the FDA created for public health emergencies so that they can move faster. The FDA is statutorily kind of limited by how fast it can go, but the emergency use authorization is something that we use during a public health emergency so that companies can get 
their products to individuals much faster. This didn't really exist before 2006, this authority, so it's new. And it is something that I think it still requires safety data. And I don't think that anything that's been approved through EUA has been really less safe than what would have been done through a full approval. It's just a, an expedited pathway because the FDA is really constrained by how quickly it can move. Thank you. That's a very thorough explanation of the mRNA vaccines. Um, we have another question now from, from Zoom. Uh, the question is, is it safe to reopen the Canada-US border to unrestricted travel? And I would like to broaden the question to whether in general travel, closing the borders to certain countries with uh, high, um, with, with, with that are hotspots, say like Brazil, um, is that an effective strategy? Does it really help uh, tame the virus here in domestically? No, it doesn't. I think that this is something that's easy for politicians to do because it's, it makes a lot of sense to the general public. But you have to remember, this is a rapidly spreading respiratory virus with a spectrum of illness where you, you have individuals who don't even know they're sick. So it's very hard. So once you already notice that this virus is spreading in some country, you just have to assume it is everywhere, just like it was during 2009 with the H1N1 pandemic, just like it was with COVID-19, that we had cases here uh, probably early in January that were unrecognized and mixed in with flu. There were cases in France in December. Uh, it was found in the sewage in Italy in December. So this had already escaped before the world had even noted. And I think that, that travel restrictions or travel bans, do not they give people a false sense of security. They waste public health resources. And I think what's better is travel screening. I think you can do the same, you can, you can have the same impact without having to restrict people's movement. So we have tests, we have rapid tests, we've got a lot of people vaccinated. So I don't think that now is the time for, for travel restrictions to continue. I think what we can do is have mandated testing for individuals who are coming from hotspot areas to make sure that they don't have, they don't harbor this vaccine. And, and coming into the United States right now, we're a highly vaccinated country. So it's a very different thing. Even if you do get an imported case, it's unlikely to set off a chain of transmission that lands on a vulnerable person. So I think there really is no sense in that. And I don't think that the, Can the Canada-US border being closed really makes absolutely no sense to, to me. I think we have... A lot of uh, Americans are fully, uh, a lot of them are fully vaccinated. 37% uh, are fully vaccinated. We have rapid tests. We have home tests. So I think you can uh, allow that travel. It's strange. You can go to Mexico, but you can't go to Canada. You can go to many other countries. The EU is opening up for, um, for fully vaccinated individuals. So I think the Canadian-US border is one that I think should be, uh, should be open as, uh, as soon as possible. But I think the Canadian government's policy has been one that hasn't been optimal. And I have a lot of problems with uh, what they're doing there and how they've, um, and how they've handled this pandemic uh, versus just versus what's going on here in the United States. It's a little bit different there. And I think for the first time, I saw some major differences in Canadians and in Americans in their approach to the approach to social problems. And uh, we have another question uh, kind of related about what you just said. We know a lot of things that we can learn not to do from from countries like Canada. But what can we learn from countries where the pandemic has been the hit? less hard than here in the US. So the question comes from Zoom and is, how did the pandemic approach in Korea work out? What can we learn from them and other approaches that work better than our own? The best thing, you know, Taiwan and South Korea are the two exemplars. And I think that the, the, the lesson is being proactive. Both of those countries did not wait. They sprung into action. So Taiwan sprung into action December 31st, 2000. Uh, 19, just on rumors that was that was what was going on on mainland China. 
they have a, a PhD epidemiologist as their vice president. We unfortunately did not. Um, so that the, there was a lot of proactivity. They were able to meet cases as they came. They were able to test, trace, and isolate so that they only had you know, the last time I checked it, it was eight deaths. I think it might've gone up a little bit since then, but just single digits without major lockdowns, without major disruptions to people's lives because they were proactive. Taiwan is in a little bit of trouble now because they didn't vaccinate their population. And I think that's that, so the, 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 little, the shine on Taiwan is a, little bit, is a little bit duller now because instead of actually then trying to be able to, they, instead of vaccinating their population, they continued to, kind of be, do, do what they were doing. And when they had the, they didn't have enough vaccine available, China actually blocked shipments of vaccine to Taiwan. Uh, that made it much harder. So Taiwan is in a little bit of trouble now, but not very, I mean, not trouble compared to what goes on in the United States on a daily basis. South Korea, one of the best lessons from South Korea was that they were hit with Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And that government during the, the MERS outbreak uh, several, uh, several years prior to COVID-19, they the population lost confidence in them. So they knew that they had to get this right, that they couldn't fail with COVID-19. So they were aggressive early on. And the way they were aggressive was really testing. They basically let their private sector, flir the, the testing flourish and just said, get tested people so we can test people so we can test, trace and isolate. That's something we did the opposite of in the United States. So not only could we not do what Taiwan did, we couldn't even do what South Korea did because we basically tied the hands of, of individuals that wanted to have tests because of sort of, this esoteric regulatory process, you could not have university labs, you couldn't have big commercial labs just develop tests there on their own and use them the way they do all the other time. They had to go through this pathway, which constrained their ability to do so. So we were flat-footed. And the United States actually used, they, they refused the WHO test, they refused South Korean tests, they tried to make their own homegrown test, which was flawed. They only allowed it to be done at public health laboratories at the state level, which is very limited. And then they restricted who could be tested to people who had only been, could only test people that had been to China in the last 14 days and who had lower respiratory tract infection symptoms. And we already knew the virus had escaped China. And we knew that there were people that just might have a sore throat, but yet were contagious and we were unable to test them. So I think those are the two biggest lessons of how, how that happened. And I think, I mean, the other lesson is we had really horrible, horrible leadership. Uh, during this pandemic. And I think that explains almost 90% of why the US did so bad. Uh, despite being ranked the most prepared country in the world, we just did not, we had evasion at the highest levels of government uh, that, that really put us on a, a foot. With a virus like that, if you give it a head start, there, there's nothing is going to come from that except for destruction. And related to, to leadership, not just political, but um, the, the the experts that are including the CDC that are giving us giving us the public this information. There's a question from Zoom that says, as a non-expert, the biggest problem I have is knowing which sources or arguments to believe. What thoughts do you have on how medical expert can better expert sorry can better explain risks to individuals so they can make an informed choice? And this will be the last question for today. I think it's very hard, and, and this has been a, a pandemic characterized with misinformation and pseudo-experts giving their advice. I would just ask of every expert to ask them to back up their data, and most experts that are good will be able to explain it to you in your own terms. You don't have to be a doctor to understand it. If, if an expert really is familiar with all the data and knows how to navigate it all, they can, they can talk to a first grade. I'm, I'm going to be talking to kindergartners next week. They should be able to be able to talk to kindergartners or PhD students in biology at the, and, and get the same message across. I think that's what you want from an expert, someone who can drill into the data and, and has, has the ability to talk about it at, at all levels and knows and can anticipate the next question and knows all of the caveats and, and gives, tells people and is honest. 
this is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we're going to find out. These are where the, the uncertainty is. You have to be an expert needs to be able to know their limitations and know the data's limitations and, and really meet people where they are and understand what, what type of question they're being asked and, and, and not have just like kind of pat canned answers. And, and it's okay to say, I don't know the answer here, but these are the kind of parameters that, that I would think about when making these types of decisions. I hope I do that, but that's, that's what I try to strive for. Good. Well, that was our last question for today. So thank you so much, Amish, for being uh, with us today. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy uh, informing the public about this, this, uh, this, this virus and also treating patients of your own. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you for um, also, thank you to everyone that uh, made a super chat donation. And we're going to have, I'm going to share a resource that could uh, be useful for people that want to know more about what we could have done better here in the US and related to what Amish was saying earlier. It's um, a white paper from our chief philosophy officer here at the Enron Institute. It's called A Pro-Freedom Approach to Infectious Disease. And it's a paper on America's response to the coronavirus pandemic and how it could have been much better. And then um, uh, how to follow us. Uh, we have a YouTube channel, you're, you're probably watching there. And if you are watching there, please subscribe to our channel, click the bell to get the notifications when we go live or post new material. And please also like, share, and comment on this video to help attract attention to our channel. And we're also on Facebook. And if you're watching there also, please like and share. And if you have any questions or comments, please email them to us. Uh, we always read and often answer and some, those emails and sometimes even take your suggestions for episode topics. So that's it for this week. Hope to see you all next week. And thank you again, Amish, Amish for giving us your time today and sharing your knowledge with us. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.